As I transition into uh, the message today and start to talk uh, about um, the work that is going on in Judges and what we're seeing, um, I want to welcome you into this series, and maybe just as I welcome you, say, we're glad you're here. I want to explain a little bit of why things are on the stage that are here. Um, This book is a mess, but it is a beautiful mess. Um, It is very realistic in presenting our sinfulness, our idolatry, um, the mess of our lives and how we screw it up with all kinds of other distractions in our lives. Um, it, It is very clear in how it presents the discipline of God. One of the themes that begins to emerge at the end of the book was there is no king in Israel. And that's why back there we have kind of a crown, but it's, it's, um, it's behind the tatteredness. And, and it's an expectation that's far off in the future for them. In fact, there's going to be one king in this book, and he's the worst character of all. Um, they're going to get some kings after the book of Judges, but they're going to prove to be frail human kings. Because the king we're really looking for is King Jesus. Um, and so as we are um, moving through the things that are in this book, um, it, it is a, a, an honest portrayal of all that is going on. And I've put some resources uh, out on the Connection Center and on the website for you. I'm going to talk about those for just a minute. One by Kenneth Way is on um, how women are portrayed in this book. Um, and it's really across the board. There are some... Uh, some women who were portrayed in wonderful roles, like what we're going to see with Deborah and with JL today. And then there's some really horrible treatment of women in this book. And uh, Kenneth Way, in just two pages, does a good job giving you kind of a summary of all of that. Uh, there's also an article there by Lawson Younger on the characters in the story of Judges tw- uh, chapters 4 and 5. And he, he surveys all of the characters, beginning with Yahweh and then moving to Barak and Deborah and JL, and he, he surveys the characters and how they're presented. And then uh, there's one article that I want to mention for just a moment here. Um, this article um, by Jen Wilkin uh, appeared this past week in Christianity Today, and the title of it is, Churchgoers May Remember Song Lyrics Over Sermon Quotes. Did anyone ever, I mean, do you hear what your pastor is saying in the middle of a sermon? I'm telling you, Church members may remember lyrics over sermon quotes. One of the most humbling things that ever happened to me was right after I finished seminary. I read this study. I wish I could find it. I I can't find it, so my statistics will be close. Um, But a survey was done of 12 churches of different sizes, different denominations. And um, what they did is they went to these 12 churches. They listened to the message They came back one week later and interviewed the people who went to these churches, different sizes, different denominations, kind of a wide variety of churches. When they interviewed them one week later, around 10% of the people um, could tell you kind of what the sermon was about. The largest portion of the people, they could tell you um, that they heard the sermon, but they couldn't give you any content. Like when you, when you prompted them, they'd go, oh yeah, it was a sermon in, in Judges. Now, this was one week later. Um, about 30% of the people um, were able to 
um, give you a little bit of the content, and then 15% denied ever hearing the sermon. And they were there the week before, like they checked the attendance. This is humbling if you're a pastor. Uh, maybe even more humbling for me is my own personal experience of this. Um, a couple years ago, I was ha- going through a very difficult time. I found it very difficult to sleep. All kinds of things were, you know, swirling in my mind. I just could not get to sleep. Um, I was having these conversations in my head that were not helpful, and uh, just it was so difficult to get to sleep. What I had to do was just literally kind of soothe myself to sleep with the songs that we sang the previous week at church. I didn't remember my messages. I, I was preaching through Romans then. You know, I wasn't kind of going, oh, yeah, the big idea, Ken, remember. I mean, what was going through my head as I'm trying to get off to sleep is I was just rehearsing worship songs. Folks, that's, that, that happens. Um, that's realistic. That, that's what Jen Wilkin is saying in this article, um, is that <laughs> churchgoers remember song lyrics over sermon quotes. And I get that. I understand that. Uh, she, she makes the comment, pairing information with music helps our hippocampus retrieve the information with ease. Um, music plus words equals recall. I mean, think about how many things that you recall by putting some music to it, okay? Um, I, I know most of the 50 United States in order because of a silly song we sang in high schools called 50 Nifty United States. Um, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, and Connecticut. I can go through the state because I've got a song to it. Um, <laughs> some families have too many children for me to remember. So um, <laughs> Trey and Christina Howell, I remember their children by putting their names to a little rhyme. It's J-Lo, no May, the little song from The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Um, it's, there, it's Jay, Logan, Noah, and Mason. But for me, I look at them and go, which one is that, Jay, Lo, No, May? Hey, Noah, he thinks I know him. I have to sing a little ditty to remember his name. <laughs> Songs help us remember things. Um, Jen Wilkin goes on to say, by Wednesday, the pastor's three sermon points are forgotten, but the choruses of worship sung are still being hung, are being hummed. Its message is being repeated in our minds. Um, and, and the point of her article is to make sure that the songs you're singing are informative, they're doing a good job teaching. And I guess I want to call your attention to the excellent job that our worship team does, not only in, in choosing good songs, but evaluating them well. I, I, I am blessed to not be one of those pastors who has to, after the song is sung, go up and say, we can't ever sing that song again. Usually, Ron is going, everybody's asking me to sing this song, and I'm telling them, no, just want to let you know because we can't sing that song. Um, you'll notice that when we're singing songs, there are scripture verses at the bottom, anchoring them in scripture. Um, songs help you remember. Um, in fact, sometimes the song becomes more important than the show. Here's an example. What's the name of that show? The name of that show is Let It Go, right? Hey, I want to watch Let It Go. That's the I mean, it goes that way. The big song is what you remember. Who remembers any of the dialogue in that? I mean, you may be able to, there's some fun parts, but who? it's the song. Um, in our section in Judges here, what we have is a narrative in chapter 4 and a song in chapter 5. 
And this song in chapter 5 um, is the part that gives us a whole lot of details, and it helps us remember. Um, and part of what I want to do today, I, I'm not sure how far I'll even get into the details of this, but I want to explain to you the real setting and the flow and the function of this song. I want, I want you to get the, the feel of it. So I'm going to set a little background, and then I'm going to really spend most of my time, I think, talking about the structure of chapter 4 and 5 and what the structure teaches us, what, what it does by how it's displayed, how beautifully and artistically it's displayed, and what the song does to help us remember the important part. So just kind of setting this up, if you'll remember... We're going through the book of Judges, and it's a cycle that goes down like a toilet flush, hence our toilets on the stage. The cycle's getting worse and worse, and with the cycle that we're in right now with Barak, we're taking one step down with his hesitant leadership. Um, the, the cycle begins with the people sinning in idolatry. God sends oppression from a foreign country um, as discipline. The people cry out to the Lord. He sends deliverance in some form. There's a period of peace and rest, and then the cycle repeats itself again. Um, this is w what we've seen a number of times. We've already seen this with Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. Now we're in this cycle where Deborah, this prophetess, has called Barak, who's supposed to be the judge like Othniel, but he's reluctant for some reason to engage in the battle, and he says, I'll only go, Deborah, if you'll go with me. And God's response is, well, um, because of your attitude, you're not going to get the glory. A woman's going to get the glory. And it's not Deborah, the prophetess. It's going to be another woman whose name is Jael. Um, how all of this is set up in uh, the land of Israel, just kind of the book itself, moves from the south to the north. Um, Othniel is a judge down here in the south. Then we're going to have Ehud, who is here. Deborah's in the south. Later on, we're going to move up to the north with Gideon. But what we have in, in our story today is Deborah, who is a prophetess in the south. She is going to call um, Barak from this area up here, Kadesh of, Bar of uh, Naphtali. And she is calling him to fight against a king who is ruling up here in Hatzor. So everything is taking place up there in the north. I'm going to give you a little bit better picture of what that looks like. Um, in the battle, um, Sisera, here's um, Hatzor, which is where uh, the king Jabin is. His army general is camped on this mountain over here. Um, Barak gathers his troops from Naphtali, Issachar, and Zebulun. And they all come together and they get on top of Mount Tabor. When um, Sisera hears that they are camped on Mount Tabor, he comes down into this valley with his 900 chariots. Now, that normally is going to be a good decision. If you've got 900 chariots that have been reinforced with iron and you're down in the valley ready to fight because chariots aren't going to go up on the mountains, okay? The, the chariots don't go on the mountains. That's not what they're done, what they're made for. Um, but let me give you a little sense of what this valley looks like. This is the Jezreel Valley. Um, this is the valley we're talking about. Um, Jezreel means God plants. That L at the end is Elohim. Um, God plants this fertile valley. This is a, 
a picture of the valley today. It is a beautiful place. This is where most of the citrus in the Middle East is grown. It's in this valley. It has now been uh, manipulated, and all of the irrigation takes place underground so that it doesn't uh, evaporate, and it's just a beautiful place, but it's nice and flat down there. It's beautiful. Even in these ancient days, they called it Jezreel because God planted this wonderful place. Um, And you can see, man, chariots running around out there would have been unbelievably successful. And so Sisera thinks he's got all the advantage in the world. Now, I I don't know what your version of this is. In in the ancient world, when there's a, a river, like the Jordan River that always has water in it, it's called a river. But when there's a source of water, um, maybe you'd call it a creek or a brook that, that barely has water in it, but when the conditions are right, it fills up with a lot of water. In the ancient world, is called a wadi. I don't know what you want to call it, a creek, a brook. Um, I, I, that is the river. When we talk about the Kishon River, it's really Wadi Kishon. It's, it's the Kishon Creek. Um, it's not a river like the Jordan River or the Mississippi or the Arkansas River. It's just a little tributary that runs through the middle of Jezreel Valley with a lot of iron chariots in there. And I'm going to spoil the story for you. How God wins the battle, and he's the one who wins the battle. How God wins the battle is he sends a thunderstorm. A bunch of chariots are out in the middle of that valley Iron chariots, think about this, reinforced with iron, heavier than normal, kind of a new technology, the new tank of the day. These iron chariots are out in the valley. God sends a strong thunderstorm that turns that entire valley into mud. Now, all of these chariots who would normally have had the advantage are totally at the disadvantage And Barak, with his army, can come down off Mount Tabor, and all of these guys who are trained to fight in their little tank chariots um, are routed. And he puts them to the run, and they run back home, and he completely destroys the entire army. Um, That story is told without the little piece that it's a thunderstorm in chapter 4. There's a poem about it in chapter 5. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about this uh, poem. Um, I have this titled, A Prophet's Anthem, here. And the reason I do is because um, we invited Dr. Michelle Knight to come and introduce us to biblical narrative and to the book of Judges. This is her dissertation on chapter 5. 300 pages on chapter 5. Okay, I've read it, highlighted it. A few weeks ago, I wrote Michelle a text. Here's what I wrote her. So, Michelle, this morning I hate you with the white-hot intensity of a thousand suns. Your excellent work on the Barak and Deborah stories has me terrified to preach it. I've even delayed it by adding an extra message on Shamgar this week. (laughs) Remember when I added a message on Shamgar? You guys thought, oh, Ken's so spiritual, he's just going to preach everything, even one verse on Shamgar. I'm just delaying getting to where we are today. I said, in all seriousness, thank you so much for the contribution you made to me personally. You made me a better scholar, better teacher, and a better pastor. Here's her response. While I generally try to avoid being hated or inflicting terror... Terror, I am genuinely pleased that my work has given you food for thought. 
There's plenty of room to disagree with me, but I think that uh, the narrative is a great place to test our methods and interpretations and see what uh, shakes out as culturally biased and biblical clarity. But having been around your church, I have no doubt the most important thing will be preached. That is that God is the hero who defies expectations for the good of all watching, uh, all the watching, waiting world. All the other stuff is important, but secondary. May God bless your presentation. So out of 300 pages that terrifies me, um, she's got four pages on translating verse 2. <laughs> okay. Um, out of all of that, here's what I need to make sure you understand from the prophet's anthem. That's the title of her uh, dissertation. God is the hero. Not Deborah, not Barak, not JL. They are all players in all of this, but God is the hero of this story. And so today I want to take my first shot at trying to show you how that is accomplished in this story. And so this is going to be um, kind of of a different kind of message. I, I hope you'll be able to to gather that, that what I'm trying to show you is the beauty and the artistry of these two chapters um, and how they really put God at the center of all that we're talking about. Um, Kenneth Way summarizes these two chapters, the narrative and the poem, this way. Both the prose and poetic versions of this account reveal the kingship of Yahweh, In chapter 4, Yahweh issues the marching orders to Barak and assures his deliverance and then goes out before Barak and his army to rout the enemy. That's chapter 4. In chapter 5, kings and potentates are invoked to recognize Yahweh's royal victory for his people. Yahweh is also revealed here as the true storm deity in place of Baal. One of the things you need to understand in chapter 5, and this goes back to some things I've talked about before, And that is that one of the biggest idolatry temptations the Israelites had was worshiping Baal. Um, And Baal is the storm deity. He is the goddess or the god of fertility who with his consort Asherah um, produces fertility for the land is how they worshiped him. But the way he produced this fertility was by bringing thunderstorms. In fact, most of the portrayals of Baal um, has him with a lightning bolt in his hand and standing on waves because he's the one who brings the lightning bolts and, and the waves. He brings the thunderstorm. And so that's why they would worship him, trying to evoke him to bring up this thunderstorm so that there can be fertility and the lands will grow. Well, it's totally ironic <laughs> that in this setting, God is going to bring defeat to the enemies with this thunderstorm. There's going to be even lightning in the middle of it, that he's, he's the true uh, victor. He is the God over all the other gods. So there's a, a polemic thing that is going on here that is actually kind of putting it in the face of Baal. You guys are worshiping Baal. You're cutting yourselves. You do all these crazy things so that um, Baal will, will bring rain and and. He will um, bring fertility to the land. But in reality, our God is so powerful that he's going to use rain to destroy those who worship Baal. There's there's a a beautiful irony in in all of that. There's also something very um, interesting that happens in chapter 4. We talked about chapter 4 for a couple of weeks. Um, I held off on this 
summary of chapter 4 because I really wanted to, to take some time to, to use it this week to show you the beauty of what happens. In chapter 4, and by the way, everyone sees this going on. I, I want to tell you, I'm not on an island with seeing this. Other people see that the chapter narrative of the account is a chiasm, okay? A chiasm is a structure that looks like what you see. It, it starts with something and moves to a pivot point and then comes back out of that, but all of the other points are parallels. Um, and, and a chiasm is common in Scripture because God is a God of reversals, okay? God, let me, let me say it this way. God reverses things. God redeems things. That's what God does. Things are going bad. He enters, it goes good. That's just the nature of what God likes to do. He likes to do these things. And so biblical authors, not everywhere, don't obsess with this like I have, and you'll see in just a minute, but God loves these reversals. Almost everyone sees this structure in chapter four. And let me just talk about it for just a moment. You'll see that it begins up here with Israel is in the hand of Jabin. And there's a specific way that it's said. They're in the hand of Jabin. They're oppressed. It's going to end and be turned around with Jabin is now in the hand of Israel. God turns it around. Um, how the things work is it's almost always trying to show how did you get from this bad situation to this good situation? Something happens here, but in the middle, Yahweh is the pivot point of all of this. You have other characters. You do have Jabin and Sisera. You have Deborah and Barak. Um, but the person who is the pivot point in this Right in the middle is Yahweh who routes. Um, this word route, the Hebrew word hamam, it, it, it's, um, it, it's onomatopoeic. I'm going to use that word a couple times today. Onomatopoeia is um, when words are used that sound like what they are, um, like hum. Um, the word for a lion in Hebrew is ger. Um, buzz. These are onomatopoeic words. This word, hamam, is onomatopoeic because it means to create chaos, to create confusion, to create um, an inability to organize yourself. God hamams them. It's like there's just there's a hum and they can't get it out of their minds. They they it, it's 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 overtaking them, um, and God routes the army. But the beauty of this passage is developed really interestingly because what you have up here at the top is these two parallels where the Israelites are mustering and the Canaanites are mustering. They're gathering them together. They muster, we muster. And that's paralleled down here by Sisera who goes out to meet Jael and Barak who goes out to meet. There's these parallels. This thing is beautifully presented to show you how everything turns. And Barak is going to go down and Sisera is going to go down. It's, it's, it's beautifully portrayed. Now, why do I put it up there? It's because we can't sing it in Hebrew. If we could sing it in Hebrew, all of us would be singing, let it go. But we'd be singing, you know, hammer the nail. I don't know what we'd be singing, but we'd be singing something from this song that is about Yahweh routing them. Um, and it's portrayed in this beautiful 
beautiful way that the whole structure of it is designed to show you this point that they were in trouble, and they were in trouble because God put them in trouble because they were idolatrous and rebellious, and God sent uh, Jabin to oppress them. And the Israelites gather their army, and the Canaanites gather their army, and Barak moves up to the top of the hill, but then Yahweh routes them. And all you get in the first story is that he routed them. You don't know how. Then you're going to get Sisera's uh, movements and Sisera running away and Barak coming to find Sisera in the tent of Jael, and then this conclusion where it's all turned around. Again, I, I hope you're, you're kind of catching, wow, not just the words of the story, but the structure of the story teaches us something. Now, I, I'm going to reemphasize, lots of people see this. Commentators see this, little variations on it, little differences of it, but everybody sees this in chapter 4. Um, now I'm going to go out on an island. I was outlining chapter 5 in the outline that you have in your bulletin. I was trying to put it all together, just go, how do I put this whole thing together in an outline that makes some sense? And so I put it in the outline that you see in your bulletin. Um, as I was looking at it, I started to see, oh wait, this looks parallel to that. And I started to see some things that were looking a little bit chiastic. So I developed a structural thing, um, and I actually <laughs> sent it to Michelle, who's written 300 pages on this passage. I said, what do you think? Her response back was, Hmm. It's not a very encouraging start, by the way. Um, later on, as we interacted, she says, there's clearly a, a, a reversal. Everyone sees the reversal. And it may be some parallels, but she said, I don't, I don't know how, where, where does it, how clear and how concise does it have to be to say, okay, there's something chiastic. Everyone sees chiasm in chapter 4. Your pastor, all by himself, all alone, he sees chiasm in chapter 5. And, and here's, here's how I think it, it develops. We have this song and a praise at the very beginning. They're singing about the salvation. And it's kind of this call to praise Yahweh. And at the end, there's a reflection back here that the faithful are, are going to praise Yahweh. Um, and I think there's something that, that's going on here. And this is the, the trickiest point. Salvation arrives as the Lord delivers through a storm. That's, that's kind of what's going to happen in this. Salvation's going to arrive as God sends this thunderstorm, and he's going to come out of the mountains rolling down with a thunderstorm. Um, by the way, I really hope there's one this afternoon. There's, tonight, there's supposed to be a thunderstorm. Just to reiterate, just to reiterate this, and maybe, maybe it'll be something. You won't remember any words from my message, but when you hear that thunderstorm, you'll go, oh yeah, like God rolling out of the mountains to wipe out another army. Um, but down here, there's an interesting thing, it seems to me, and this is a weird one, that there's a taunt of Sisera's mother. Um, what happens at the end of the song is Sisera's mother is imagining, by the way, Sisera's been killed by Jael, okay? She's, he's laying dead. Um, Barak and Deborah, Deborah's writing the song, Barak is singing with her. Um, what, what happens is, Deborah begins to imagine Sisera's mother, and, and as she's looking um, 
through the lattice of her, of her palace, and she's going, oh, where's my son? Why is he delayed? Oh, he must be gathering all kinds of booty and some women to bring back for the men. And I bet he's bringing a shawl for me too. Meanwhile, he lays dead at Jael's feet. Um, the, <laughs> salvation does come. And here's this woman who's anticipating salvation. She's on the wrong side and salvation's not going to come. Um, up here at the, the beginning, we, we get the willing participants that are from the tribes. There's some tribes who help out. Down here, we get a, a portrayal of, of J.L., who's the individual who really participates in this. Uh, then we get these cautious cowards, the tribes who don't participate, and we get this harsh indictment of this one group. We have no idea who they are because they're cursed and they don't exist anymore. They've been cursed into non-existence so much that you go, who are these people? We don't know. They're just gone because they didn't help. And again, in the middle of the thing is the true hero, and this is the Yahweh story as he intervenes. Um, so I, I think this is going on, and I, I really want you to kind of see, in both chapters, Yahweh is is put at the beginning of the, at the middle of the story, because he's the one who delivers. Now, I'm going to say something. Um, translating this is absolutely crazy. So I'm going to read the story. I want you to, I'm going to keep the structure up there. I'm going to read the story. I don't know what version you've got, but whatever version you got, it's not going to sound like the people's versions around you, because this is poetry. So, for instance, I'm going to read it from the NIV. And uh, the NIV says this, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. If you have another version, you may have some version that says something about hair flowing in the breeze. Okay? When the princes take their lead... Um, a really good translation of the Hebrew, a, a literal translation, would be flowing hair, flowing hair. Really? I mean, th this is poetic stuff, and there's a lot of... Uh, it's, it's why Michelle actually takes four pages to figure out how to translate this verse. Um, it, it probably has something to do. Literally, it's flowing hair, flowing hair, or... Hair, hair blowing wildly in the breeze. Hair blowing wildly in the breeze. The idea of it is the, the, the warriors and the princes who are leading are, are rushing into the battle. They've let their hair down, and their hair is blowing in the breeze. So the princes have taken the lead. Okay, that's, we're, we're working with a lot of poetic language here. But what I want to do is I just want you to feel this story. I, I can explain it, and I'll do some explaining in a couple of weeks, but I want you to feel the transition of this story, um, and I want you to, to pay attention to one other little thing that I'm going to show in here. When we get to um, what J.L. is doing, um, there are going to be seven verbs that describe what J.L. does and seven verbs that describe what happens with Sisera. The parallel is unmistakable. J.L. does these things, it happens like this to Sisera. The other thing is, I, I can't do it in Hebrew, but I'll try to do it as I read it in English. 
Um, the words for what JL does, the last four of the words, in Hebrew all end with sounds. Think of a hammer, because she clacks, clacks. Um, it's be translated a little bit different, but you'll, you'll hear the hammer, and I'll try to do that. As I just read through this passage, I want you to feel the, the reversal and God's deliverance at the beginning. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Eden, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people, praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys sitting in your saddled blankets, by the way, that means a Cadillac in the, that day. And you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singer at the watering place. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gate. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, O Barak, Barak, take your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then the men who were left came down to the nobles, and the people of the Lord came to me with the mighty. With the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear the commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley, in the districts of Reuben, where there was much searching of heart. They searched their hearts and they joined the battle. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks in the city districts of Reuben, where there was much searching of heart there? They searched their hearts and stayed by their campfires. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, Dan why did you not linger by the ships? Asher may, remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun raised their, risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Kings came and they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, but they carried off no silver, no plunder. From heaven the stars fought. For their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, uh, go his mighty steed. Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Hibber, the Kenite, uh, who uh, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Uh, he asked for water, she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him the, cu curdled, the curdled milk. 
Her hands reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. He, at her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Where is his chariot? Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why, why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answered her. Indeed, she keeps saying even to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A womb or two for each man. Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder. So may your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the Lord had peace for 40 years. When you're in distress and you're under the hand of oppression, even if it's by your own doing, your hope for rescue is the Lord's intervention. And he may use some other people. In fact, the people who came to the valley and came into the battle, they get praised here. Um, J.L. in particular is praised. But those who don't engage in what God is doing, um, they are pushed to the side. And, And there's certain people who get specifically called on who refuse. Some stayed by the campfires, some stayed by the lake. But there was one group that refused, and they were cursed for not jumping into the battle. So I guess I have two things I want to say. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out because they have no idea where I am on, on the outline. I'm finishing. Um, no matter why you are oppressed, God is the one who always will rout the enemy, even if you've brought the enemy on yourself. Because God is a gracious, glorious, praiseworthy Redeemer. And He loves to turn our lives from being under the hand of oppression to being in the place of blessing. And we don't deserve it, but He loves to do it. Father, I pray that even the structure of this passage today would have something um, inspiring and convicting to say to us. Father, I pray that as um, we respond to you in worship, that um, how we do that would be worthy of your greatness And that our lives would not just praise you with our words, but praise you with our trust. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.